Welcome back to another episode of Coder Conversations. We have William back, and thank you for coming back, Raj, as well. How are y'all doing today? Good. Good. A little less squirrely uh, this day. <laughs> A little less coffee. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's, what's, been, what's been new with you guys? Oh, with me, not much. Same old, same old. At the, I told you where I worked before. I want to leave the name out of it though, uh, just because I am, uh, I am working on uh, getting into management there. But uh, yeah, it's a process. <laughs> Anything new with you, Roger? Uh, I've been working on a website idea, like a podcast website idea just in the idea stage but i'm trying to like get down like the requirements and everything okay yeah man uh but there's, there's been a lot of interesting things happening in the world of tech uh did you guys hear about uh paypal uh they were going to write in their policy that if you spread misinformation they were, uh they were going to fine you twenty five hundred dollars yeah and they took it back too pretty quick <laughs> like PayPal, that's like a payment service. How are you going to spread misinformation? I mean, what kind? What, where are we talk? What context? Uh, I guess if like you're on social media spreading misinformation, they they they're reserving the right to be able to find you twenty five hundred dollars, you know. It's like if you're people, a if you're their customer and you spread misinformation, they're gonna find you twenty five hundred. I'm like that's. That's too much. That's too much control of my life. So yeah. I thought we were. I thought we were done with that World War II thing. You know that place over in that other yeah. country. You know I thought we were done with all that stuff already. Because that uh, I hate to say it. That sounds a little bit like. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, kind kind of sounds uh, like author authoritarian. Like you say something they don't like. You know they can corporations reserve the right to you know, fine you however, you know, whatever they want. I don't really think that's right. It's going to be great when, um, I mean, if like the full realization of Web 3.0, when that comes out, that's going to be great because nobody's going to own. <laughs> I mean, so like, like you're, we're doing this video right now. I mean, I'm sure we're going to have to like maybe do some kind of like an online waiver or something, but like you, you're going to own the rights to this video. It's like Melon app. They can't, you know, they can't own it. It's like whoever the original content creator is, you know? So, I mean, but like, if that goes like in, look, I, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. That sounds, what you just said there sounds a little bit like Nazi Germany, man. So mm. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not into that. <laughs> Let's just say you do all that on Web3. Like, how would you moderate it though? Um, Because it's like, do you know how, uh, You know how the blockchain works? Yeah, a little bit, not too much, but yeah, it, it's it's not uh, it's not only in one place. It's distributed, right? So there's multiple servers all around the world. It's going to be the same sort of concept, and uh, yeah, I mean, I got a whole lot to say about Ethereum and Web uh, Web 3.0. It's just my own my own beliefs. I've been I've been playing around with like, you know, I started with Bitcoin and then I went to Litecoin and then I've been like with Ethereum for a long time now. And uh, I have some invested 
right now. Not a whole lot, but, you know, enough to take a vacation on maybe. And uh, uh, Web 3.0 is going to be based on the, uh, the Ethereum and the NFTs and all that behind it. So people keep on telling me, oh, it's not worth anything. <laughs> I'm like, okay. You know, when I when I first started, you know, Bitcoin, I had at one point I had 10, 10 Bitcoins mm. and uh, I lost the wallet. But can you oh, imagine wow. what that would be worth nowadays? I mean, it's like right now it's only worth like a couple hundred thousand. But like, you know, maybe last year it's probably worth like half a million. Yeah. Or whatever. But yeah, people were just giving them away when Bitcoin first came came out, you know, so. How, how did you end up losing the wallet? Like what, what, what does that entail? Um, it was probably like uh, seven to ten years somewhere in that time frame that uh, it was sitting on an old computer and the hard drive probably got uh, trashed, you know, because I was oh. just like, ah, it's only worth five bucks. Who cares? You know, sort of thing <laughs> or whatever, you know, five, five bucks a, a coin or whatever. So, I mean, and then one day my buddy, uh, the guy I was telling you about last, uh, the last interview, uh, the guy who worked at Lockheed, he was like, did you hear? I'm like, what? He's like, uh, Bitcoin's worth like 19,000 a share right now. I'm wow. like, what? So I went through like all my hard drives, look for all that stuff. And then uh, now assuming that I did find it, I would have to remember my password then. Right. To get oh, it. Right. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I, I lost out on that. But uh, how, how do you recover mentally from something like that? It's just like you never had it. So you don't really never, care for never, it. never had it. So, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, somebody gives you a million dollars in your hand. Right. It's not your money. That's kind of how, right. kind of how I, kind of how I, here, hold on to this for, uh, for me for like five minutes, right, or wh whatever, you know. And that's the same, same kind of mentality I've always said. I'm probably um, amongst the people that uh, know me and that I know, probably one of, in that regards. When it comes to money, I'm probably the most trustworthy person because I mean I don't view it as my money. It's just like okay, well, this is cool, but you know, <laughs> now what? <laughs> What am I gonna do? Am I gonna go to the Barbados or Mexico and live like a live like a um, a fugitive for the rest of my life? No, that's not my that's not me. So, Roger, did you ever invest in uh, any Bitcoin? Yes, a little bit. Like when it first came out. I mean, I'm in loss right now, but yes, I'm like even. Last year, I was thinking a lot about NFTs, like maybe investing in NFTs, like all the NFT craze was like going up, but I don't know. I didn't feel like, you know, it was actually worth something except the, some of some of them, which actually had like actual um, real life users, I guess. Most of them are like, oh, we are going to do this, 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 this. And 10 days later, once it, the NFT launches, it's like, oh, it's done. There are no users coming out. The founders leave the you know the project mm -hmm. alone. But yeah, the big ones are good, but they're costly at the same time. Like spending 10k or 20k on an NFT is I don't think that's worth it for no. now. Yeah. yeah, they're too volatile. Ethereum, Ethereum is not gonna go everywhere because all that stuff is based on Ethereum. I, I see personally, and you know, maybe I'm just silly for thinking this, but I see Bitcoin going away before Ethereum. Just because there's like really nothing that like, 
I mean, there's a lot of people invested in it, but there's nothing that really depends on uh, Bitcoin the way from my perspective, you know, it's different, different with Ethereum. So. so what do you think about Polygon? Since they, they are doing like almost the same things as Ethereum, like, you know, they have NFTs, they have all of this going on too. I don't even think about them. <laughs> I'm concentrating on like uh, one coin, you know. Yeah. I mean, there there actually is one, the one that that browser is based on. What the heck is it called? Brave. Um, Brave browser. Yeah, the, the the Brave browser, uh, whatever. I, I forget. I, I I will bounce back and forth between Ethereum and that one, but that one's got actual like you like you said, uh, you know, it, it, there's something that's you know, physical, or well, yeah. I mean, as physical as software can be, but. <laughs> so. yeah i like that they have like some of these coins have actual use cases compared to the meme coins like doge or like you know shiba you know but even the ones with actual use cases are still not going up in value if you're actually investing it for you know as an like if you're investing for an investment it's not going to go up because most of the people are looking at like they're not marketing it properly or something i've used stellar like xlm if you ever used it like i've used it to move uh, some of my bitcoin and it is quick like it is less than a minute your funds transfer like if you move it on ethereum 30 minutes probably a day or two like last year it was probably a day or two I mean, right now, I think it may have been reduced to 30 minutes or one hour, but. Well, the exchange that I use, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's instant, but like same day. So like, if I want to take it out and put it back into my bank account, um, it's going to be like this, as long as it's before, like, say, uh, before like noon, you know, my, on my time, uh, it's going to be in my account before, you know, say like three or three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Now, like when I come out of my bank account, into my exchange it's instant because uh there's a federal law where they have to hold the funds for like seven days or whatever but so they give you a loan on that money but like if that if that money doesn't uh doesn't actually exist in your bank account which uh, you know it happened to me on i I, uh did the opposite of what i was trying to do i tried taking it out of my uh, bank instead of putting it into my bank and that boy, that messed me up for a good a good week or two. You know, I couldn't do any trading. They they pretty much locked my locked my trading account. So, and also, uh, I don't know about this companies like putting my money in these companies. Though, like, okay, Coinbase is one. There is Gemini. Yeah, there's Binance. I guess. I think those are the top three that I know of. But even I knew of Celsius that just went bankrupt and lost like billions of dollars of other people's money. I'm like, okay, let's just say like some company or some guy, we don't know who it is. He lost $40 million from since Celsius went bankrupt. I'm like, why would you put $40 million in another company's account basically? And I don't know. I, I still don't trust in this cryptocurrency thing because I don't think it's built on stability, though. Is, is there any kind of insurance against that? Like, uh, if you if the company goes bankrupt, so it's just completely no, gone. Nothing. Everything is gone. Like, oh, wait. Uh, so, 
you you could find out who that person was who lost that forty million dollars because it's still going to be on the blockchain. Nothing yeah. ever no, nothing ever goes missing off the blockchain. Um, it's much worse than that actually. So during this bankruptcy thing, what the judge said was, "Show me every transaction made in your on your like inside your company." So they released like some m number of pages of document like i think it's 14000 pages of document i guess with every person's name and how much they transacted like literally your name like if you have ever even created an account in celsius your name will be there and i'm like yo that is so scary like my my bitcoin is gone my ethereum is gone and now my name is outside to the whole world with all the amount that i lost to yeah, I think uh, I think if I still had some money left, I'd be looking to sue those people personally. You know, whoever the the owner of that was. Yeah, but they're bankrupt though. It's like suing the companies, which is a bankrupt company. You can't even get that much. They already lost at that point. See, that's that's why I don't trust them. Like I see a lot of these companies, like crypto companies, that pop up, go bust like two two seconds later, and I'm putting my own money to this company well i've been with coinbase since they've been since they started so I, because it's one of the biggest ones and it's in the u.s it's a u.s based company well it kind but, of started off i actually got before it was like a european company but before the federal law the american federal laws kicked in i was able to get an accounts because it was like brand new but then the fed stepped in and said no no you you guys have to be regulated. You guys have to meet our standards, blah, 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 or whatever. So I was like one of the few Americans who had like a, a Coinbase account for a few years or a year or two or however long it was. Because mm -hmm. I had people ask me all the time, how did you get a Coinbase account? And I was just like, I just, you know, I just uh, opened one up, you know. And then the next thing I know, now they have like a, uh, now they split it. They have like one based in the U.S. and one based in Europe. And uh I'm not sure where I'm not even sure where it started in Europe. I think it was like uh, maybe uh, Britain, but I'm not I'm not positive. But, For those that don't know, what what is the blockchain and how does it work? Man, you got to go to you got to go to Udacity and and, and read mm -hmm. on that because it's pretty complicated. But basically, you have hashes that could be uh, cross-checked, and it's like uh, so. Think about like a link like a linked list, right? So like how you have like your you have your like your pointer here to the next to the next part of the link list. And that's kind of how it works. You know, that's just like putting it really in simple terms. Um, man, it's crazy. I did like a little course on what, what was was it Udacity? It was oh, it was Codecademy. Mm. And I was like, you know, because I had been messing around with, uh, like I said, you know, Bitcoin and all that for a long time. I was like, well, you know, I don't really know how this works. And uh, yeah, so I, I did that little course in Python or whatever, and that was an eye opener. You know, I, obviously I didn't retain the information <laughs> for very long, but I mean, I, I still understand like the, the the basic concepts. But I mean, if you want to like get down like into the uh, MD5 hashes and all that stuff and how they do the actual checking, I, I don't remember those details, mm. you know. Like, what, what are they attempting to accomplish with blockchain? Like, uh, what is it overall? So, like, I think I, I think every uh, every currency is going to have its own objective. Like, you mm. have NF, 
NFTs and like you have a game, right? A game that operates off of NFTs where you can win F- NFTs, you can buy cosmetics in a game for mm-hmm. NFTs and stuff like that. Like, but like Ethereum, Bitcoin, I'm not sure what the objectives are there. All I know is that you used, you could put in work. A long time ago, I used to think about it kind of like the, the SETI at home app where you would like kind of like rent your computer to other people and they would do some, but no. I mean, basically you were just checking the hashes to make sure that they were valid with the last, you know, with the last link link in the blockchain. So, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. I mean, first, uh, like the Bitcoin and Ethereum, I, cu- I couldn't tell you. But Honestly, 90% of the blockchains or currencies don't have any uses. Zero, zero use cases. Or even if they have a use case, no one's going to use it. Like the best example of that that I can give is Helium. It's called Helium Network. It's like Wi-Fi, but their own Wi-Fi. So they give you a physical product that you can keep over here and you can mine Helium. And everybody else around you can do the same thing. And like you can send data through this Helium Network. People only used it as an investment, so nobody actually used the network. Everybody just uses it as a way to get money. Because if you use it, you get some money like every day or something like that. Yeah, I never figured out what happens when a coin is being mined. Like, what what, what is the graphics card doing exactly? Y'all know? Well, it's... um... You're doing... uh, You're uh, basically... uh... Wow. I mean, I'm going to do really injustice here to it, but basically it's more powerful. I mean, I used to know all this a few years back. Um, I mean, like right off the top of my head. But uh, graphics card is like uh, for like uh, like like single pro- uh, singular process. So like with a, a CPU and a modern computer, it, it's uh, parallel processes, right? So you have like eight 64 cores, however many in between there uh, on your system. And each one is running at like, what, let's say like three, uh, three gigahertz or whatever. Um, you can do so much, but like you have like a, like a really deep pipeline between your, uh, let's say between your actual instruction set on your CPU and then like the cache, the cache memory, you know, like the L2 and L3 cache. Um, so, I mean, that the, the, the pipeline for that is pretty deep. So it's going to be a little bit slower that, uh, versus like a video card that has like uh, a bunch of uh, shaders that can just do like simple, really quick execution of functions. And just and they have like what is what, what's like, I mean, some of those cards nowadays, uh, they have like uh, from the, the shader uh, shader processors. To memory like 20 or maybe 30 gigabit a second uh bandwidth which is much faster than you know well it's much faster because there's more memory on a video card usually i mean a lot more versus like the l2 the l2 is like the fastest which i mean i don't know if that's what they uh if if that's like sram or whatever but it's like on the die i think and the l3 mm-hmm. The L3 cache, I guess some of the, the newer processors, they have the L3 on the die, but it used to be that the L3 would be like a like an SRAM slot that you would plug into your motherboard 
and it would still be fast, but it wouldn't be, you know, maybe 10 times slower than like the L2 cache. Um, but yeah, I wanted to go over some of that uh, bit manipulation that we were talking about last time because I went back and watched the video and I was like, oh my God, how many squirrels were there in that video? Because it was like squirrel, squirrel, you know, I was just like all over the place. Uh, too much coffee, but when you, yeah, guys, yeah. when you guys are ready. Yeah, go ahead, man. Uh, feel free. So like um, I, I had obviously plenty of time to think about it. I think the best way to look at it is like so let's just talk about like regular math like base 10 math right if you have the number 10 and you shift that number to the left what is that going to give you it's going to give you 100 right because you're going to drop a zero on this side and then you're going to shift the one over one decimal place and vice versa if you shift it to the right mm. you're gonna you're gonna have a one instead of a 10 right so basically what you're doing is you're multiplying and dividing by 10 right because it's, it's base 10 math. Well, since binary is base two, you don't uh, multiply and divide by 10, you multiply and divide by two, right? So modern processors, like uh, let's say this one, I think it runs at like 3.2 gigahertz. It's an eight core uh, i7. Um, that's like uh, 3.2 billion instructions per second that that processor can handle per core. Um, so when you're doing bit shifting in C, it only takes one instruction, which is uh, like, uh, for, uh, well, one, one clock cycle, I should say, which is like one, three, uh, three billionth of a second, right. To perform a bit shift. It's going to take relatively longer to do that just by using normal multiplication because there's like a multi, uh, uh, nowadays they, they're, they're pretty fast. You know, it's not like the old days uh, where like uh, multiplication and division was like really CPU uh, intensive, like very expensive, right? So like, yeah, you can still do like, multi, uh, you could do multiplication like on a modern processor and it won't be hit as hard as like an older processor. But like if you're trying to squeeze every single ounce, you know, out of there, let's just say you could do like, you know, three billion bit shifts a second, technically, you know, if if you're using C. Yeah, and that's because or C or probably assembly language too. Maybe even C. But when you start getting stuff like Python, JavaScript, you have a the interpreter that's gonna be in your way. So it's not gonna take one. It's not going to take like one clock cycle or well i mean i guess technically it's one instruction so that would be like one three billionth you know of uh of a of a why well, that that's not right either i'm not doing it doing it justice but i mean does that make more sense that i explained it that way basically you're uh so if you shift to the left once in binary you're, uh, you're multiplying by two. If you shift right, you're dividing by two. Now, this only, this only works on fixed point uh, numbers. So, like, uh, it doesn't work with floating point because floating point has a different uh, standard. Um, now, there is stuff that they use called fixed point where, let's say you have, like, maybe three or four digits on, on the end of the number that is, like, the decimal. 
and then so many members on this side, but then you're kind of reducing the size, you know, the size of the numbers that you can, your integer that you can work with and whatnot. But, you know, and then you have to do, then you have to do the conversion. You have to remember where your decimal goes, you know, you have to keep track of this in your, um, in your program and whatnot. I mean, does that make, is that a little bit clearer? Do you think? Versus the way I said, the, like the sliding window before. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never used bit shifting before. It's just kind of hard for me to visualize what's going on. I can picture like the numbers, you know, moving and all of that. But what, what, what is bit shifting used for exactly? Well, I mean, uh, it could be used for anything where you need to do like really fast multiplication and division. And okay. uh, back in the day when uh, so... What was that? 13H uh, graphics mode 13H. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, you had you had 10H and 13H. I think uh, uh, 10H was like mode X is what they called it back in the day, and then uh, I forget what mode they called uh, 13H. But uh, basically, if you do the math, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it would be like you'd shift it so many decimals to the left or whatever, if you wanted to say your uh, your pixel that you were manipulating was at like one, one, and you wanted to shift it down to like 21, you know, X, Y, you would know, you'd be able, to, be able to do the math on it to where it'd be like an instant, just an instant single instruction execution to where you could just do that. But typically, I mean, you probably know this, is that they used to do uh, off-screen buffering and then they just like flip the context. If you know what, I mean. they switch between the buffers uh, to show on the screen and whatnot. So you could do that like really fast, like, you know, 30, 60 times, however fast the, the game was or whatever. And then you just switch the context to the other buffer and, and put it in. Um, now the best way I can uh, explain bit masking would be like, uh, you have a memory address. Let's say you're working with a GPIO, which is just like an on and off um, peripheral, right? It's either input or output. So that's either zero or one, right? So you have an address for your base for your processor, your base address for the processor, and then you have, you add that to the base address for like the GPIO, uh, GPIO register. And on the processes that I was working with, uh, the GPIO, um, Register is that the right word? Because you had several, uh, well, GPIO bank. So you'd have mm. the GPIO bank address plus the base address. And then based on the mask, you can figure out which uh, which pin you, you were concerned with, whether it was an input or an output, or whether you just wanted to uh, switch the mode. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I did with, uh, with that was just switching the mode between uh, on and off uh, at boot. But I did do some stuff with uh, LEDs uh, for kind of like a test program uh, for the electronic engineer that I was working with to a, where he, he could make sure that his uh, circuitry was working properly. It would just uh, light up all these, leave them on for like a second so you could actually see it with your eye and then turn them all off, you know. So, I mean, does that make sense? Uh, I think yes, you know, with that, I'll, I'll probably have to spend more time like uh, studying bit shifting and masking because, uh, you know, I've, I've never used it before. 
You know what I mean? But yeah, it does, it does make sense. Like, uh, it's just a quick way to do math, you know, certain operations, like you mentioned, moving pixels around. That is, I think, so like bit masking is more of like a ease of use when you're working with like single bits because you could use a single bit for like a, a Boolean flag, right? Mm. You could use a single bit for like a, a zero for false or one for true or whatever, you know? So mm-hmm. versus like, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the specification is on any language actually for a Boolean, like C++ or javascript but you can bet it's going to be more than one bit so if you're like working on like really small hard uh hardware that has like just very minimal uh amounts of memory and whatnot every little bit that you can save you know can help so yeah i think we've kind of spoiled this day and age like we work at a much higher level and we have so much memory like (laughs) but at the same time i was actually you know um you know since i was like thinking about all this stuff um I had to refresh my memory a little bit, but I was watching a video about a guy talking about bit shifting uh, in C. And he started talking about other programming languages. And he was just saying bit shifting in C is a lot different from, I mean, probably C++ because C++ gets some of its background from C. They're not the same language, but they're still, I mean, you can still write some C into a C++ program, but uh Say like uh, Perl, or uh, I'm not even sure if Perl has it, but like apparently you can do bit shifting in almost any language I can think of. Mm. But he was saying it's like a single instruction. <coughs> excuse me, a single instruction uh, for C, you know, and that kind of you know that was very poignant for me because I was like, oh yeah, because you have the interpreter, you know, like the JavaScript interpreter the Java interpreter, even like the C-sharp interpreter, right? Now it's, uh, what do they call it? It's a JIT language just in time, compiled, at least the first time. And they have it highly optimized, but I doubt that you're going to get just like a single instruction bit shift in C-sharp. I mean, if they they are, then Microsoft, kudos to Microsoft because they're doing their job, you know? I mean, very well, but I mean, still C sharp is still an interpreted language, you know, byte, you know, what do they call it? Byte code or whatever. Mm, yeah. Is anyone using C sharp right now? I don't see a lot of C sharp applications recently. Uh, my last company, they, the whole, back, you know, most of their backend was in C sharp, you know, ASP.net. Yeah. I think, you know, certain companies, they're better than Microsoft ecosystem. Yeah, the thing like if you have not invested in any of this Microsoft ecosystem, like ASP.NET, like C Sharp, or like all of their backends, mm. there's actually there's actually a lot of people using C Sharp because you can run uh, the the .NET framework on like Ubuntu nowadays. So if it's if they're doing that with Ubuntu, then you can bet that there's a lot of uses, a lot of usage out there. And, and from what I can tell. It installs really well and it seems to work okay. It's just that like any of the information that I could find out about, I was going like trying to figure out, do I want still want to use JavaScript for like the back end stuff or do I want to use C sharp or go? And I think I kind of landed on go, you know, go is pretty for a back end language. Go is a pretty, pretty solid language. 
goes very fast compared to mm -hmm. other languages like super i think that, that's one of the fastest backend languages yes kind of like a, yeah cool. no kind of like uh, the new c yep. well no I, <laughs> yes yeah. or no <laughs> i mean let's just say like you take a like a really simple hello world app you compile it with go and you and you compile it and see and then you compare the file size file size and, and go at least when i checked it like five years ago was like 200 times bigger yeah i mean it was like five megabytes versus like 212k right and anytime you have a, a language that compiles into something that you're going to have a performance a, a massive performance di difference there because anytime you have to cycle through that much code to do the same thing you're going to spend more horsepower processing whatever you're doing now Is it going to matter? I mean, for a pr uh, hello, printing hello world to the screen? No, it's not going to matter. You're not even going to notice the difference. But if you're like, if you're doing thousands of transactions a second, like uh, you're just doing the thousands of things all at one time, and you're doing it like, let's say you're doing it on like a Raspberry Pi, it's going to matter. <laughs> it's going to matter. But then, you know, uh, but there may be a difference there, but it might it might not matter you know it really it really depends on what your end goals are i had this argue argument with uh my front end developer when i was you know that when i was working on that uh well on the beagle bone here on that uh on that uh one year contract that i did and yeah he because i mean I was super hardcore into performance back then i was like there's no way in the world you're going to be able to convince me that this is going to be good enough but he proved it to me it was good enough so i was like okay well i concede then it'll be fine <laughs> well, what are they using as your company roger hmm? oh we use node.js okay so, yeah, it's a vast performance difference <laughs> oh yes i think there's a lot of uh like i've seen a lot of companies like recently like any company for back and they're either using go python or Node.js. I mean, I know Node.js is pretty slow compared to Python or Go. And Java has been declining too, at least for the backend side of it. Like Java has been declining a lot. Like ASP.NET, maybe like five to 10 years back, it was the, a lot of people were using it. Maybe still some of the enterprise apps are still using ASP.NET, but any of the new companies that recently started have not been using uh, ASP.NET at all or Java for that matter. I think a lot of people use Java in banking applications or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some use cases where uh, Node.js is actually faster than Python. It really depends on what you're doing. I read a big article on that probably like seven years ago. And I, I can't imagine that it's changed much. Any, if anything, like maybe, I don't each have like comparatively improved, but there's still like the same performance gap between the two when it comes to like certain applications and by application i mean, mean like use 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 case you know um i wish i could remember like i said that was like seven years ago but i mean python's really good for like uh scientific mathematical stuff yeah um, i like data science stuff too like if you learn yeah right 
Python is the way to go, even though I think it's still slow. Like even for data science, I think Python is still slow. I think they use another language. I forgot what it was for data science. Yeah, I think at a certain point they they don't care about performance as much as maintainability, so that's why they go with stuff like so that. So you, you have Rust. You used to have F Sharp. Microsoft used to have F Sharp, but yeah. now, nowadays I think for like uh, uh, outside of Python, people are using Rust. Rust, I think. But uh, hmm. let me check it out. There used to be another one that was like. I can't think of the name of it right now, though. I mean, but F Sharp and Rust come to come to mind. Scala. Yeah, I don't know much about Scala. R, R is the language. I don't know what it's written in, but like no. I've seen like Python and R been like at least in the data side of things. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with all of that 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 aspect that sector of programming, you know machine learning data science Man, this is like i think everybody's stack currently like if you want to like do anything is like react front end back end is python or node.js that's it like create a website make some money and move on with your life that's, that's what like every other company is doing like, I like no one is trying to, oh go on, sorry um no i like react a lot that's all i was gonna say yeah I see, like, I think I recently saw something. I don't know if it's, it was on Stack Overflow or something, but Angular is actually has less uh, market size right now. Yeah, it's kind of declining, but a lot of, you know, more corporate entities use the banks and mortgage industry. Yeah. I guess it's more of like a cohesive package than React. It comes with everything you need, and uh, but React's more flexible. They've been using, I think, Next.js. I think that's Vue.js or something. Uh, if, I don't know if that's the framework of Vue.js. Next.js yeah. Next is supposed to be like a corporate yeah. or, or professional version of React, I think. It's Next yeah. or something. That is, for React, I think it's Next. That's the framework. For Vue, it's Next and U. Oh, so okay. <laughs> both are almost the same name. Yeah. <laughs> There's too many front-end frameworks. There's a new one, uh, what is it, Svelte? Svelte, yeah, Svelte. I, I don't know about Svelte. Like, I have not used it at all. I've been looking at uh, Next. I think Next is very popular right now, like, more popular than React. Like, everybody's trying to use Next instead of React. And there is, uh, for static web pages, I think it's Gatsby. Like, if you just want, like, yeah. a long Thing they've been using Gatsby a lot. And Hugo too. I think Hugo is brand new but just came out. Is it really that good to where you just wouldn't use like Express just to serve up static web pages? I mean Gatsby? I mean I really don't know. To me it just like stock maybe a little bit of JavaScript just to do a little bit of pushing around on the on the UI or something and then like HTML and CSS, I mean, that's not good enough. Okay. <laughs> Nothing can beat that. Nothing can beat that. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> you can beat like plain HTML and CSS, but they just make it easier for you. That's like, that's okay. They have their own themes and templates that just like make it easier for you to start things. That's another thing. Being a C programmer, I mean, it was like a, a 
big chore for me to go and learn that uh, WebSockets API that, uh, you know, 20,000 lines of code. And I didn't learn the whole thing. I only learned what I needed to learn to get the WebSockets running right. I don't normally use other people's code. I, I normally, if I need something, I write it myself. Now, that's going to ta- it's going to take me longer. Imagine being like in JavaScript and you're like, you need something like React, but it's like, oh, I can't use that because that's somebody else's code, right? So now you have to do the same. You know, React is actually pretty good. Um, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but I mean, compared to what, when I was orig- originally messing around with like Node.js and Express, man, it's it, it makes things uh, pretty simple and easy. I, and, it, and it looks good. It, one thing with React is that you need to know a lot of other things for it to work properly. Like React is just plain, okay, you can write it, but you need to know Webpack or Vite or something like that to roll up all these bundle sizes. Then you have to use TypeScript, so you have to down install that TypeScript config instead of actually like having integrated into it. I think Angular has everything. Like state management, you have to find a state management for yourself. You have to learn that thing. You have to learn this thing. But in another sense, it makes it easier for us so I can choose what I want and I can reject what I want. So like I forget what it's called, but like uh, so let's say you have like a back end language uh, doing your back end stuff and it's just presenting like an API. And then you have like uh, you have some kind of like a middleware between uh, the front end and the back end. To oh. handle, but but there's something there. What is it, GDM or something like that, where it has to because you're you're getting data from one server and putting it onto another server before it goes to the web page. And there's some kind of like there's some Graph kind of data. what's that? Do you mean GraphQL? No, That's no. What, what it it has to do with like uh, the 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 data is coming from a different domain than the server you're actually getting the information from. So there's some kind of a, th- uh, I forget, ODM or something like that. I forget. Of cores. Cores, 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 right. Cores, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, stuff like that. I mean, I just recently started reading about that stuff not too long ago, and I'm like, what? Yeah, what talking so about? Pretty- I'm, only, I'm only talking to this one server. Why do I need this stuff in there, you know? I had a, like, a- I know right now about Express, how to re- get rid of course, if I'm using like Express backend server. But recently, like I, while I was working on this podcast app thing, like I had to call from another server, which I have no access to. And I don't know who owns that server over there. And there was this course error happening for me. And I'm like, I can't go to the backend and remove that course. So how do I send this from my front end so that, you know, course like this, doesn't happen and it took me like two days or something and did not get to a conclusion like a proper conclusion i use some hack i think it's called no course anywhere or course everywhere or something like that there's a package that you Mm -hmm. can like upload your own heroku uh, heroku and like pass it through it acts as a proxy so you send it to that that sends over there it gets back gets back i'm like that's a lot of work for me to do this like why are you like making this extra work making me work extra for me to get the data. There's got to be some way that you could do that without cores. Like you get this server to get this da- data from that server, like your web scraping or something, and you write it to a file or something, then you just spit it back up out of your server back to your front end. You know, that there's got to be some way. Maybe that's, yeah. what, maybe that's what cores does. I don't know. Well, yeah. Core is more like a browser, browser security thing. 
like uh right you're limited the, the domains that can hit the server yeah you don't you don't want like you know just random information being sent to places it shouldn't go it's like a huge security risk yeah i didn't even think about it from that end but there's got to be some way you can handle that honestly i think the best way to get rid of course is like upload the front end and back end on the same service like the same like let's just say you use gcp or aws upload both of them on the same you know platform that just yeah. makes it easier so they can talk to each other like inside you can i think there are probably some ui like you can just click and like connect both of them together from inside so you but don't that, have to deal with all this but that kind of like that kind of like ruins like the whole concept of uh, microservices right because like you could technically for like a microservice, it could just be like, uh, what do they call that on AWS where it's just, you don't ha technically have a server. It's just uh, edge, edge. Like I think a talk uh, edge, I think it's called edge. I forgot the whole thing, but it's like Lambda functions. Lambda functions yeah. is just like you upload a function, but I think there's an edge server where you can upload the whole app itself. But there's gotta be some way to like, say your back end is on this server right here but it's got to reach out to this other server for like uh, uh some data that is given to the front end there's got to be some way to where this server can talk to that server without the front end knowing about it you know then that way you know and then maybe I, I don't know maybe that's going to put too much stress on like the the front end server or whatever no i that exists like that does not concern front end at all that like you backend can talk to their own backend services, but it depends upon if the other service that you're talking to from your backend allows it to happen or not. If I have a GCP like a program and you have one and you're trying to talk to mine and I don't allow it, it's not going to happen. I have to like open up to your IP address or to your service so that you can talk to me. And you can restrict people like that too. If you don't want everybody doing it and your own application talking, then you can like restrict that service or that IP address. So what would you guys think about WebAssembly? Like there's uh, frameworks like Blazor where you could do C sharp in the front end. It's kind of like a angular type of framework. I've heard of it, Vassum, like I think they call it like. Is C sharp really the correct tool for a front end though? You you, you you see what I'm saying here? I mean, you got you got you got the proper tool for every for every different thing you need to do. Why would you want to yeah. make the wrong tool be the right tool? I mean, when you already have the right tool. I think you know certain companies they're just like so invested in a certain type of developer they they don't want to bring in other guys. <laughs> Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. I think Vasm yeah. makes it faster though. It makes the whole application faster, depending upon the language that you have written in. Like if you wrote your like software in C, it's a smaller bundle size and faster processing. And what Vasm does is I think it just converts this to so that web browsers can use it, I guess. That's what it does. Yeah, I think it's good for like, you know, like certain applications that get ported over to the web, like, you know, like Unity, like games being ported to the browser. You don't necessarily want to rewrite everything in JavaScript. So port that. I can understand that, but I don't think it's necessarily that great for typical web development. You already have the ecosystem there. 
I've heard it's the future of web development, like from a lot of people, like on LinkedIn at least, like they've been saying that yeah, this is the future because you can use other languages and just use WebAssembly to convert it, you know, and play it on the web browser. But I don't know. I don't think <laughs> not in the next few years. It's going to take some time for everybody to upgrade themselves. It kind of sounds like there used to be something I can't think of what it is where you used to be able to access programs through the browser. Um, it had something to do with PHP, I think, but you know, PHP is like terribly slow. Um, I can't think of it. It was like, from memory, it was like largely like a Linux, like a Linux Linux technology. Microsoft was doing something else, so, but like if you just needed like a little a single bit of data, like a single number or something like that, then you would just call like your your back end program through the web page, but it was supposed to be done in like a secure way through this little interface. And I can't think of uh, what it is that I'm, I researched it once and I was like, well, why would I use that when I have web sockets, you know? So I just used web sockets. <laughs> so, but now, I mean, is anybody even using web sockets anymore? Is everybody using like gRPC and all that nowadays? I think they're still using WebSockets, yes. Yeah, yeah, for more like real time, you know, communication. A uh, lot of chat applications, yes, they're yeah. using WebSockets. WebSockets. One, one thing, I think it's called TRPC. I, I think you just talked about it somewhere. It's called TRPC, mm -hmm. which basically, I don't know, I, I heard this one of, one of these guys talking about TRPC where you can send data, like it basically reduces your Node.js packages. Like this guy deleted half of his Node.js and converted it into TRPC. It's like so some kind of socket system. I don't know exactly, but hmm. they say it's been like growing a lot too. Well, GR, GRPC is supposed to be, uh, I don't know, just it's developed by Google. That's what the G stands for. No, it's uh, T. No, but there's also oh, GRPC. Yes, yeah. Oh, let me check that one out. Maybe it's the same as this. Remote procedure call. Yeah. Which, yeah, a remote procedure call isn't really this. I mean, uh, the original RPC isn't the same thing, but it's kind of, it's kind of the same thing, but it's not. So mm. <laughs> I guess kind of, I, no, it's 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 not even the same thing. I guess it's more it's more like WebSockets is the way. I don't know a whole lot about gRPC, but from what little that I have read and watched video wise on it, it's it's not even remotely the same as uh, RPC. Because I mean, remote procedural call on Windows is basically you have a socket that you can communicate to, where I think it's going to say okay. I need this kind of like uh, an application or something. So then it opens up another socket, but that's like local as far uh, like maybe on a local network at the most, that wouldn't be from like the web in to, uh, or from outside the web, you know, to the web sort of thing. What do you guys think about the metaverse? Is that something y'all plan on jacking into or? That's web 3.0. Mm. Zero, zero chance that I'll ever go into the metaverse because <laughs> I mean, there is no way like I saw Facebook doing it. And so I heard like there was some online news article that I read about Facebook and metaverse. 
what Zuckerberg has been doing is that he has been like doing more on the meta, like he has been putting pressure on the metaverse department and like putting more money into it, but it has not been outputting any money back. Yeah. Like, it's not generating any revenue and it's like. But there is no metaverse yet because Web 3.0 isn't out yet. So, I mean, how can there be a metaverse if the if the back end of the metaverse isn't in place, you know? But McDonald's invested like $40 million into their their development team for the metaverse, from what I remember reading like a couple months ago. Yeah, I think people so, just, you know, companies want to sell digital assets. Like, you know, you sell something, you create something once digitally and you can replicate it and sell as many as you want. So, well, the way... The, the way that I kind of thought about it in the context of McDonald's is they have an online presence. You know how kids are kind of like sucked into like their phones and stuff nowadays, right? Yeah. So the kid, they go into the McDonald's, they're playing with their friends online. They're like pretend eating, you know, in the game or whatever. Now they're, now they're hungry. What are they going to want? Right. They're gonna, they're, Mommy, daddy, let's go to McDonald's, you know, or something, you know, so. It probably have where you could just order it in the metaverse and they deliver it to your house, like the ultimate well, lazy. <laughs> something else that maybe maybe hits closer to home is somebody paid eight hundred thousand dollars for the metaverse home next to Snoop Dogg's house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like <laughs> they paid all that money for nothing, like digital. Hey, Snoop, Snoop Dogg. I mean, you know, he's got some. He's got some good music i mean depending on who you ask i mean i think he's got some good music out there but uh do you really need to pay eight hundred thousand dollars to get a digital home next to his digital home you're right uh, it's, it's <laughs> too much money a lot of people have been um investing in this metaverse because of all these celebrities but most of the celebrities get it for free like why would yeah. Snoop Dogg or like any celebrity invest like even one dollar into this without the other guy saying, "Oh, I'm going to give you like three million dollars. This is yours. Go well, he, like utilize it a little bit." He just made somebody eight hundred thousand dollars. You know, he shouldn't have to invest yes. anything. <laughs> no, I, I, to, oh, to answer that question myself, <laughs> no. But I would be interested in learning about it because I think the technology is kind of cool. And why not make money off of something that other people enjoy? I mean, yeah. think about like seven years ago, did you ever hear of a game called Ro a Roblox? Yeah, yeah, yes. Billions. But, but, but yeah, seven billions. years ago, there was no Roblox, right? Never even yeah. heard of it. And then like you know, suddenly Roblox is out. Now everybody knows it because everybody's kids is like, mommy, can I install Roblox? I'm like, well, no. I, mean, I hate Roblox. <laughs> <laughs> like, because, you, you know, with Roblox, you, you know, kids play, but every time there's always like a, a, a screen that pops up, like, do you want to buy this? Do you want to buy Roblox? And, uh, you know, unless you're careful about the settings, they, you know, they, they, they can just run up your credit card. <laughs> I always used to, so a close friend of mine, her daughter, I used to hang out with them for when I was living on Maui. Uh, she would always beg, uh, beg me for like Roblox. So I would just buy her a gift card and give her the gift card, you know, that way she's, she stays away from my credit card sort of thing, you know, and, and, and then, 
and then it's it's like uh it's also like not just something that oh you just got paid today give me some roblox sort of thing and it's like well you know uncle bill he doesn't have the money he can't he can't afford 30 roblox right now i gotta pay i gotta pay my electric bill <laughs> so Yes. Someone commented saying that McDonald's was developing some AR ML for their ordering. I hope not. Some what? So like, like, oh, AI? AI, I'm like, imagine like I think of McDonald's and it's just like I'm scrolling and it just like orders from itself. Like, oh, okay. He's thinking of it. Let me just order it right now. <laughs> uh, yeah i i don't know i think people are getting a little bit carried away with all this new technology there's use cases for like ai and stuff but for ordering stuff from mcdonald's i mean that's like i mean you could do that in html and css why would you why would you need ai for that sort of thing right maybe they just want to like build models of like train their models according to what you like so that they can show it at the top yeah, show show like a, the the food that you most likely buy and you know and like give you offers like every this month or like they can track everything literally. Data is king for every company. But that's point. that that's why Web 3.0 is going to be awesome because that that whole data collecting thing is that data is now going to belong to you. My data is going to belong to me. It's you know. So Kevin, his data is going to belong to him. Everybody's individual data, they, they're not going to be able to sell data anymore. The only way they're going to be able to do that is like you said, like with the McDonald's app, they can use that internal to their app. But technically, if they're using like, you know, the Internet somehow with Web 3.0, well, that data technically doesn't belong to them. That data oh. still belongs to the individual. I have a question for you with this data thing. Okay. So let's just say I made a post, right, on Web3. Like, imagine, like, there is a Web3 Twitter right now where I could post and it goes onto the blockchain and everything is saved over there. I made a post where, which I did not want to post at all. Let's just say I say that, oh, I have $10 million. Now I know everybody's going to come after me, but I posted it already. Now I have to delete that thing. How would I do that? On the blockchain? Yes. I don't know. You understand the, the acronym SOL? <laughs> no, what, what is it? It just means S out of luck. Oh, okay. I got it. Yeah, yeah. See, th that's the thing that I don't want it to happen. Like, that's one of the biggest cons that I see. Like, any Web3 app or something, everything is recorded and saved forever. Like, I wouldn't want anything to be saved forever. Even my mm -hmm. own brain wouldn't want my memories to stay forever. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like a double-edged sword, I guess. Maybe even a triple-edged sword, you know? You have to look at it for more than one one thing. Like, uh, it will say you put up a resume and then you decided like uh, two or three years down the road, well, you don't want anybody else to see that resume. What are you going to do? Okay. So, yeah. I, so, with the resume, I've heard of somebody actually doing this, like they put their resume online and like, you know, send the blockchain link or something to the person. But it's like, isn't it going to clog up the system with all the outdated data? And it's going to make it slower and slower. The more data it goes in, the more slower the system network gets. I'm not I'm not sure how they're going to handle that. Um, 
I would think it would work something like how our cognitive, uh, you know, how our, uh, as people, how our memory works. You have short-term and long-term memory. Long-term mm-hmm. is going to get stored way, way, way in the back. Now, it's going to be really slow for somebody trying to get that long-term memory, you know, but everybody who's currently operating like in the present within the last X amount of months or whatever, you know, it's going to be relatively quick, right? But I would imagine it would be something like that. But doesn't it seem like the internet is almost like uh maybe like a giant brain that of some eventual AI, you know, we're all like little nodes on that that brain, you know. Well, our brains are basically a really complicated computer. So I mean I don't know if like computers are exactly models like after the brain or whatever, but I mean the same basic concept is still the same. You know, I think that's how Google sees us. Like the Google, uh, like AI or ML system, that's how they see us. They see us like a small node somewhere, you know, and connect us to every other thing that we Google. Well, I got something to say about that too. I got something to say about everything probably. But uh, from what I've seen, at least when it comes to like generating code, it's just the fancy, it's just the fancy Google search engine. There is no, there is no thought process in there. It, It can't write code from scratch. It goes out and hits up like, you know, uh, Stack Overflow and other sites and then, you know, maybe makes a little bit of AI judgment on like, hey, will this thing actually work sort of thing, you know, based on, you know, the text around the stuff or whatever. But it doesn't actually write any code. It goes because like if you was you, you guys watch Dave Dave's Garage on YouTube. Mm-hmm. He's a a retired Microsoft engineer. Uh, He worked on Windows XP and all that stuff. He was uh, talking about all this stuff, and then he did uh, did this thing with the the Google AI stuff. So I said, oh, okay. He's he's got like a given program, uh, like uh, what the heck is it? I think he like tries to uh, see how many times he can calculate, uh, what is that, uh, not fractals, Oh, prime prime numbers up to like a thousand. How many times a second he can do that? So he's got his own little thing that he does, but he does this with every programming language that he uses. So he did that with uh, with the AI, and he, and he did it with different languages. He said, "Yeah, it's doing it pretty mm-hmm. good." So I went up there and I started like doing my own. Not, I, I don't do prime numbers, but I was just like, "Okay, so do the X Y Z. Write me a game and uh, JavaScript or something." And I kept on refreshing it, and I noticed that the same data was coming back. So I actually went out and did my own Google search, and this stuff was coming from stuff like not maybe not Reddit, but like uh, like uh, Stack Overflow and stuff. I was seeing the same exact code, you know. Yeah, but and I was like, imagine the more code it has, the more it develops itself. Yeah, it doesn't. It does. It won't work for anything. Uh, like if you have to have something like. Uh, I, I couldn't give you exact numbers, and, and I think there's like a you can do a little bit of adjustment like on the web page app, but uh, say like over a thousand or maybe five thousand lines of code, you're gonna have to break it down into smaller chunks. Otherwise, it won't be able to like say you you're gonna need to like you need to write a back end function to to get the date and time, 
And now you need to get like uh, that to your front end. You know, you're going to have to like break it down into little micro chunks to get that to actually work. And then yeah. and, and word it in a way to where it's actually going to be able to all link together, right? Without having to write any code. So, yeah, I mean, not right now, but what it's achieving right now is good enough. Like if I say, show me an addition, uh, add two numbers, it's going to like, you know, give me a function with like, you know, two numbers and the return and everything. Oh, That's yeah, good enough for right now, but like maybe it will increase. Yeah, don't get me wrong. It's good. It's like uh, it's it would be like an advanced Google search. So instead yep. of having to wade through all these separate web pages yourself, it automatically comes back with the best option that you can find. And then you just take that code, you play with it, you make it into your own, and then you know, it's. Yep. The, I mean, I, I've probably spent weeks working on stuff that I wasn't familiar with before searching Google and playing around with different things until I finally found something that I could use for a given situation, you know, and that would like minimize that down pretty good, I think. But it's not writing. It's it's not uh, the AI is not writing the code. <laughs> it's no, just definitely. Google. But it is slowly kind of improving, though, uh, I, from what we have seen, like, I don't think five years back, like any any AI could write and it, uh, like you know add to numbers but right now even though it's getting from stack overflow or something it's going to slowly improve on you know what it can search or what it can store what it can learn from the stack overflow data yeah i mean i think i i like stack overflow if i i mean i mean i'm almost always put in stack overflow and then you know whatever i need after stack or maybe stack overflow at the end you know depending on Sometimes, is, sometimes what I feel like is that I search for an exact thing and the stack overflow pops up. I click on it. I look at the answer, but it's too outdated. It won't work on my app because they haven't updated in like five years. And I'm like, oh, this was my last opportunity to get rid of this bugs here in my app. Well, that's when you go to Stack Overflow and you search the thing within Stack Overflow and they'll give you like a, a, a dated you know, yeah. like if there's multiple answers for that question, there you'll see the dates on them. So, I started but, searching uh, GitHub because a lot of people on GitHub, yeah. like uh, in their issues or something, GitHub issues side. So a lot of people have the same problems as you do. And if, and if you need like a, if you need to learn, learn like a, a new concept for you or something, just searching that like on like you said on GitHub. You get like a, a full blown example. You can just like start wading through their code. Mm -hmm. But just yeah. like even like let's just say you want to start an application, right? Which has like React, Node.js, this, this, this. You can search for that exact thing, and they already have the boilerplate ready for you. You just That's clone cool. it, start it up, like start writing everything is set up already set up for you yeah what's the name of that uh that uh, package in, in node.js is it called create react or whatever yeah create react app yes <laughs> yeah but i um i've watched a couple of udemy, udemy videos and i, I kind of learned really quick that the the people who rely on create react aren't very good coders it's the ones that use create react but then know what to delete 
out of the you know out of the file system that are the good the guys that really know what they're talking about. Uh, I'm not an expert myself, but I mean, before I like start diving head first into like writing my own code, I like to know at least half of what's going on, you know? So, I mean, I used to be pretty good with JavaScript. Um, I like JavaScript a lot still actually, but there's also a lot of uh, pitfalls in JavaScript. I mean, just the old uh, equal equals versus equal, 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 you know? There's, or when is uh, when is null not a number or you know, stuff like you know just the the crazy stuff that'll throw the oddest bugs into your uh, into your app. Yeah, JavaScript has like the if you do if you do the two equal signs, it has the automatic type conversion. So you know it'll automatically convert like zero to a boolean if necessary. You know. That's, that's why I always recommend doing the, the three equals. So you have the it checks for uh, type as well as equality. Because, yeah, uh, I've been trying to use TypeScript even in my personal projects. Like whenever I start an app, it's always with TypeScript. So it's a developing, I mean, I'm trying to develop my skills so that there'll be less bugs in the future. Because I have seen like, even right now, like if I write a, a JS file and I write like probably like, let's just say 100 or 200 lines of code, there are type errors somewhere happening always. Well, I've been watching and, and reading that TypeScript actually isn't uh, necessarily, in certain cases, isn't necessarily all that good either. Because it's basically just like somebody took JavaScript and then bolted something on top of JavaScript, right? To, to you know, format the, the code or like, what would they call that? Transpiling? Transpile the code properly or whatever, you know? I mean, yeah. to the best of the knowledge. And then who is that, Simpson? Yeah, Kyle Simpson. He was uh, in the big Yeah, I mean, wasn't he talking about something about TypeScript too? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't like TypeScript. And also, like, they've been trying to introduce types in JavaScript. So it's like, then TypeScript won't have much of a use if they try to, you know, put that. I think that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the attraction to JavaScript. A typeless, uh, a typeless language. I mean, if you know what to avoid, and I'm not saying I do. I, I mean, I used to know a good bit more about it than I do now. But if you know what to avoid using in JavaScript, it's really not that bad of a language. Um, but there's like a book called uh, JavaScript, uh, JavaScript, the good parts and the JavaScript, the bad parts. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they're written by the same uh, author, but... Uh, JavaScript, the bad parts was the guy really knew what he was talking about. And uh, that's actually when I started, um, not when I started learning JavaScript, but when I really started learning JavaScript, that my eyes were opened, you know, because I used to, because the syntax is so similar to like C, curly braces and all that stuff right there. Um, I just kind of treated it like C for a long time. And I'm like, man, this language is a piece of junk and then i really started learning about the language you know and how to how to use it properly and then i read that book uh the bad parts and uh yeah it was a huge eye opener and then you know no no js came out and i was like dove all the way in you know honestly like you can use javascript to build anything 
like any application you think of like you can use javascript i don't know about embedded applications that's like c and i don't know c plus plus maybe it or not but 90 percent of your use cases can be done with javascript even though they are very slow i kind of i kind of see it as kind of like a uh, you could use so like as a c programmer i would use it as uh, often use it for like a prototyping language so if i needed mm. to uh, slap something together really quick just to demonstrate something, I would do it in JavaScript. And then I'd, I'd uh, convert, you know, not convert, but then I would uh, translate that into C. And uh, another good use that I've always found for JavaScript was like using it as a graphical user interface to my C applications, because it's much easier to get visual representation in a web browser through JavaScript than it is to write a user interface in C. <laughs> You know, I mean, even C++, which has like all these frameworks, it's a huge pain in the butt to get all that stuff working, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of like, you know, I mean, you, there's a tool for every use. And maybe that that tool for a given use is different for different people. But uh, I think that's the beauty of like programming. There is, I mean, there are right and wrong ways to do things. But those mm. are, um, I mean, for the somebody who's been around for like three to five years, those are going to be like really obvious what to avoid doing, what not to do. But like, I mean, there's just so much. I mean, I have a friend who I he worked for Amazon or uh, friend in real life uh, who worked for Amazon or uh, Google. One of the two, I can't remember, but he's a Perl programmer. He's got 25 years of Perl programming under his in, in Linux. You know, the guy can pretty much command whatever he wants to uh, make for the company that he works for. Uh, I detest Pearl, but hey, he, he's like the last I heard probably like 10 years ago, he was making 150K a year as a Pearl programmer, you know. So now he's got like 25 years. He could probably, you know, get like a quarter million easy, you know, for like a gig. So I might a quarter million a year, 225,000 a year. So, yeah, but. Uh, I think the multiple use cases of Java, I like, I like the multiple use cases of JavaScript though, and like moving from one thing to another thing. Uh, I learned React, so I'm try to build mostly everything in React itself. Like I don't have, don't try to touch like plain JavaScript. If like, that's only if I actually like need to go there and do it. So I was trying to find a stopwatch app for Windows. All I need is three functions. Like I think stop, like there is start, pause, and stop. That's it. Like, and anything else is useless for me. And it needs to be like a small application so that I, I can push it and it needs to be pinned on top of my screen. Could not find a single application on Windows or online. Like I went like so i was like okay i can write my own it's not that big i can find the code online i can find some random react project online and i can just slap it into electron js that's it that's all i did i did it it built a exe file for windows and i started using it. And I'm like, this seems so easy like anybody can build it like if you know how to copy code you can build a windows application just by copying them 
Yeah, I'm actually I'm, I'm thinking about there's several games written in JavaScript, and uh, some of them are selling on Steam, have been selling on Steam for a while mm. now. And, and some of them are actually really popular. Uh, I, I can't think of the name, but one of them is kind of like a like a computer, like the movie Hackers. But you're going around, you're hacking other people's computers, and you damage them by you know hacking their computers, sort of thing. But it's like an old. The graphics is like Mario Brothers. You know, it's like pixelated and all that stuff. But it's a really popular game amongst some people, and it was written in JavaScript. <laughs> you know, it's, I, and I actually watched a, I watched a video, a couple of videos actually on YouTube. The guy has his own channel, and I, I found it, uh, you know, as just a, a programmer. It doesn't matter. Like if I prefer like high performance C programming and stuff like I still find that sort of thing interesting, you know. And then, like last week, I found this uh, this Asian woman. I would have to assume that she's living in the UK or maybe uh, no, she's living in Australia because she was talking about going to, from Auckland to somewhere or something. But, uh, and uh, she uses go and she was like doing game game programming and go and stuff. But the way I found her is I was, uh, I was uh, doing some research on bit shifting and go and stuff like that. You know, um, I was, you know, like I said, I was thinking about it and she had like a really good explanation on pointers in Go because you, you, you start, you can really tell somebody's experience level with programming when they like, you know what the ampersand symbol is for, right? That's the address of symbol in some programming languages. It means like the address of, well, when you have somebody who's inexperienced, who sees that ampersand in front of like a variable, they start calling that a pointer. And I'm like, no, I think that's actually the address of the pointer you're talking about there. You know, I mean, just these little niggles that I think of, you know, in, in my brain nitpicks. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the last time that I heard ampersand, like I think the last time that I programmed C, was probably in 2014. Like in my first year of my engineering was my bachelor's was the first time that I did and the last time that I ever touched C program. I think we did a little bit of embedded C just to make like we used to have that micro uh, microprocessors and microcontrollers that we had to control. So other than that, never got into C because I honestly like I did not understand pointers. That was one of my biggest things. Like in the six months that I did that class, I did not understand pointers. And it's a big thing in C to like actually understand how pointers and how pointing to different addresses work. That's actually one thing I think Go does right because of the way they place the uh, the asterisk. It tells you whether it's like, uh, I don't know, I, I can't really explain it well, but it just it's not placed the same way it is in C. Because like you would have like a double asterisk in like C or C uh, C plus plus. I mean, what the heck is that? A double what a, a, a void pointer? <laughs> I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about when you see like a double asterisk in front of like a pointer? It's like okay, what is that? A pointer to a pointer? What is that? You know, sort of thing. But uh, 
go. They they do all that sort of thing right. They they either put so you would have like the type and then like maybe a space and then the asterisk and then you would have your variable type instead of having the asterisk right on the end of your variable name, right? So I mean maybe maybe I've got it wrong or the wrong way around or whatever, but uh I remember when uh watching this girl's videos, I was like Wow, that's actually really cool, you know. But, uh, hey guys, it's about an hour thirty. I'm uh, in the stream, but uh, we, we can stay in here and uh, keep chatting. 